0: Hello, and thank you for joining us for this episode of Bookable Space. I'm your host, Yvonne Battle and we're joined by author Linda Jean Hall. Linda Jean will be reading from Gifting Resilience, a pandemic study of my Black female resistance. Linda Jean, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thank you. Pleasure.
0: Anytime. I really appreciate it. Everyone knows by now I love being read to, and so any opportunity that I have of being read to, I'm just... For it, But we're just going to dive right in. And can I ask you to please tell us a bit about your book, Gifting Resilience, A Pandemic Study of My Black Female Resistance? Oh, and I just wanted to say, too, I absolutely love the title. It makes me smile. It's the idea of resilience being something that you can gift, that it just, like, every time I read it, I'm just like, ah, yes. So if you can tell us a little bit about the book, please.
1: Okay, so um, I really wanted to look at resilience and what the oppositional factors that influence it. It all originated because I was very concerned about my mental health when uh, after COVID subsided. And in order to look at myself deeply, I had to pick up, first of all, an incomplete manuscript. Okay, which it started back in 2005, and finally tackle it and build on it to, in a way, to um, address my own problems as they existed in 2022 and 2021, et cetera, and make it relevant and also, in a way, that would be importance to other generations, not just to myself. I knew that I had a message to give and it, I felt because we were also isolated after COVID still for at least six to months to some people or even a year or some people now in the states are still involved and, you know, not going out or whatever. But I wanted to, to describe that experience in a way that was easily digestible. And then not only that would, that would serve a purpose. Because I knew that I was not the only person experiencing it. And I, and I knew that this type of thing had taken me from being a world traveler and a person with no, hardly any restrictions on myself as far as meeting and greeting people to someone full of the two things that are, that I was concerned with a wrestling about the truth that came out of this era and also about hatred. Because I had fallen into this, and I wanted to understand why I was so full of fear, et cetera, and, and also hatred. I, this is the first time I can claim that I was honestly, you know, a, a person consumed by it almost. So, um, you know, that kept me from going back to the person that I was. There was no new normal for me. I didn't know what that term meant, nor did I even think that going back to the normal prior to COVID was possible, but I had to come to terms first with who I had been so that I could look at who I could be. Okay. What would make me a person of worth after this experience, because I couldn't just step out of the door that's behind me now and enter the world that bruised and damaged person that I was after COVID. I couldn't do it any longer unless I came to terms. And so I entered the world and I started working and teaching, mostly still online. I was teaching classes, but I still was not out there amongst people. And I was still sheltered for the most part. So I'm writing from that perspective. That's my context. And so I was in this this silo. And I could not reach out every time I would be invited to go to campus for a lunch or whatever. I turned it down. This is just not me, you know, but I did. I turned down all opportunities. So I wanted to get to the place that I could have the courage again. And that's another thing that that you get stripped of when you're consumed with, you know, fighting to find the truth. You're also, you know, and consumed with hatred, too. You don't see all this stuff anymore as opportunities. You see closed doors everywhere. I can honestly say that I haven't completely emerged from it. I'm still a damaged person, but you know, the, the magical thing, and I know we're going to cover this later on, is that when I speak openly about this to people in meetings now that I finally have the courage to attend, people say, I am not who I used to be. I am permanently changed. I think that COVID did this to everyone to one degree or another. But I think as far as us going out into public, we're all skeptics now. And then living through things like, gosh, George Floyd and uh, Black Lives Matter and, you know, and then the Donald Trump fiasco and the mishandling, you know, of, uh, man, I'm going to go out there and put it on record in my opinion of, of early COVID and all of these things that happened. You know, trying to put them into perspective and then at the same time, trying to build a life again at my age. You know, you got to remember I'm, I'm up there in age now and I was struggling like a young person. I felt like a kid again, like, you know, a kid consumed with suspicion, you know, and I didn't ever want to be that way, but that's how I ended up being. And the book really, it starts out with a, with a statement about this. And it builds on that to take me through my my history to see exactly how I arrived there. You know, there had to been something going on in my life that that for the first time I was able to be defeated by these things. Was fight to identify truth and and then be consumed with hatred because it had never been me before. Who is this person? Okay, so this is an exploration of who I am, and it turned out to be. Something that uh, according to the people who have read it, their struggles are similar that, you know, and that, and this is the kind of thing people don't want to talk about mm-hmm. because you do have to look back to find out how you became that vulnerable to be, you know, to be in a position now that you're so suspicious that, you know, you're acting this way. Who are you? You know, and anyway, that's the, the crux of it. Okay. Well, could we have our first reading, please? Oh, sure. Well, in the introduction, I'm just going to go ahead and, and start out here and uh, jump into it because I think it's going to explain a lot of the things I already talked about. I don't know why I'm so scared all the time. I just wish I could say that this is a new feeling. Or is it? The only thing that I do know is that the pandemic didn't help. I am now genuinely afraid of anyone with whom I suspect that I don't share a political Viewpoint. At the top of my list are those unmasked millions and their unvaccinated cousins. Both have proven through their actions or lack of caring that they are my mortal enemies. I pay a heavy price each day to be able to carry this much hate and suspicion. It's made me content to be alone and cautious about doing just about anything that will require me to have contact with anyone I do not know. I am the antithesis of my former self, the brave world traveler. Instead, I am now devoid of any desire to extend my life beyond a 12-mile radius of my apartment. Accompanying my fear of others is what I know from former experiences to be the sense that I'm slowly developing some form of mental illness. In the past, during my unwanted childhood and as an adult member of a historically marginalized minority, I only responded with positivity to the countless confrontations I had with very hurtful people. Then, the immersion into despondency that came from these confrontations, well, it served to rejuvenate my spirit. In this book, I revisit some of these events to ask why it is imperative that I liberate myself from the COVID-19 legacy of distrustfulness and partisanship. Now, the next segment is titled Motivation and Intersection of the Personal and Professional. Any analysis must begin with a close look at the present. In this case, who am I today? Professionally, I'm an optimistic anthropologist who focuses on positive outcomes to gaining knowledge through daily events such as success. The foundation of my work builds on a strong argument by fellow anthropologist, Setha Lowe, in 2009. I share her opinion and research and teach from the standpoint that truthful language and actions produced a lived experience and as a center of agency, a location for speaking and acting on the world. Lowe opened the door for me to embrace and study acts of compassion and veracity. For the first two months of 2020, the direction of my career as an independent researcher was solidly grounded in Lowe's Erudite Council to place emphasis on positive outcomes. When the epidemic created a culturally ubiquitous event, a coming to hatred moment, I was in the initial stages of developing a project to explore the retention of minority students at the University of California and California Polytechnic. University in Pomona. The advancement of this organization was halted when the virtual atmosphere of social separation prevented a necessary evolution of the central committee's cohesiveness. At the time of writing, and it was 2022, and for the past two years, societal uncertainty and division continued to be factors that define a coupling of unpredictability of the coronavirus with a pre-existing and more intensified climate of political anxiety. The prevailing milieu marked by the reconstitution of primal social inequities and the associated increase in avarice dictated detachment from and the rampant politicalization of a plethora of issues that continue to shape our daily lives. Too many of us are overwhelmed by the struggle to identify which side we are on. When I read posts on social media, I realize that I'm like so many of my fellow pandemic survivors. My spirit is broken in a way I have never experienced before. Each day, the lack of socialization requires that I deconstruct my former life while asking what precipitating events facilitated the formation of my new hate-centric identity. The best place to begin a search for an answer to this question is to identify several key events that shaped my youth in early adult years.
0: Wow. Can I ask you, what was the process of writing and researching the book like?
1: It was... um, it was painful because, as, as I referenced in the beginning, I stopped in 2005 for a reason. Though writing the first manuscript, my my first son died of AIDS in 2005, oh, I'm so sorry. and um, because of that, um, I had been compiling the book in a way that I had wrote, uh, written to the point that I was talking about him, and so his sudden death really just brought to an end any desire to return to the text i address all of this inside the context of this book and it helped to shape me not you know that was a a gut-blowing experience in itself true enough but that didn't stop me that still didn't break me and i can't imagine that you know as i said why COVID had such a profound Outcome on me. I, I mean, it just made no sense because there, and the book details all of these traumatic experiences that I went through, but I always just kept plugging along. You know, I was like the little, uh, Energizer Bunny. Everybody, I don't know if that's an international thing <laughs> that everybody can relate to, but it's a popular commercial about a very popular battery that just goes on and on and on. And, well, I was the Energizer Bunny. Okay. And, um, but this one, it was different. I, Wanted to go back to the book, which is the next reading. And, you know, it comes directly from that manuscript. And I wanted to build on it to show that the person that I have become, which is a person highly influenced by scholarly readings, a person who's gone, you know, through all kinds of additional personal changes too at the same time, and then had a profession in an area in um, digital technology for over 30 years that was you know I was in the forefront of change too now I'm, I'm you know this put this makes me a very different type of person this gives me a, a perspective that is so unique and I'm speaking too for baby boomers whose stories are, are not very much told I'm, not many of us are writing our stories and I think that if we feel as though if we're not Angela Davis or, you know, or somebody like that. Nobody's going to want to read our memoirs, but we broke the glass ceilings. We worked the jobs and in industry that for the first time that a black person was ever allowed to be in this position. We did all of that. And I think that we have to tell why, because it's this resilience that we experienced and, and, and benefited from needs to be passed on. Our parents gave us a lot. They kept us in church singing those good old Negro spirituals. I'm just going to put the old word in, 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 in quotes here. And they kept us, you know, um, vigilant, vigilantly watching over us as we played. We learned that, you know, this is the way you become a good human being. But all of that had, had gone away. For my generation, our generation experienced life in, in that, in a way that we had to become a different type of culture, a different type of black culture. But it's not told. This story about the middle class has disappeared. We've got our great hero stories. And I love Angela Davis. I mean, everything that she's done, I, I can, com- I completely, you know, oh, so much to her for opening up so many doors. And I'm not trying to belittle her and her achievements, but I honest to God believe that my cousin who worked at US Steel, Hmm. you know, and put up with God knows what to get, you know, to be in that job for 30 years, his story is just as important, especially as a black male, you know, doing something like that. You can only imagine what he went through. Our stories need to be out there and it's the only thing we can live because they, you know, leave behind that will have an impact on future generations these are something that some things that should be treasured i think and um since there's so few of them i i believe that that's the reason that the books that i'm that i've been writing have have really struck so many people's hearts and if that's where my books do seem to have an impact is in people's hearts they they take them and they read them and they go like God, I've been through this, and I don't care if you were and I have you know, the testimonies from super rich white guys in Germany and and then you know, and then people who I didn't never thought even enjoyed reading, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden will pick up my book and read it from cover to cover that's I'm referring especially to the first one that I wrote, and then this one here is more of an academic study too, and so I think that that makes the readers of this of this particular text, folks who have been through the mill in academia, at least through their undergraduate degrees, and they can probably relate to this. I think that I have written out a, a good portion of other people's. It's full of theory, too. And some people might, you know, not, you know, wrestle with this and get lost in it. And I knew that, but I was challenged to write a textbook. And that's the the production that you see now. We should mention that, I guess, Yvonne, is the fact that this is also a widely accepted textbook. Okay. Wonderful. Yes. So Could we have
0: another reading, please?
1: Okay. So this is from almost directly from the first manuscript that I abandoned when my son died in 2005. Walking is chapter three, In the Shadows. The first day of my independence in Georgia, it looked like I was continuing my record of being a professional and academic success, but not much of a human being. I placed an order with the waitress at the diner beside the Holiday Inn. She had tried to ignore the dark ruse beneath my eye, but failed. This obviously embarrassed her, and I could tell from her posture and the compassionate sadness in her eyes that she understood this was a time before cell phones and even beepers were a novelty you could disappear without leaving those that you left behind any way to get in touch with you until you were ready i didn't have any idea when i'd reached the point that i would ever want to talk to my husband again but i did miss my son I ate the meatloaf and mashed potato dinner while evaluating my current financial situation. The utility money was running out and I would have to give almost the last of it to the front desk to pay for another day. My new IBM manager had advised me that the company would disburse to me a modest per diem allowance once I checked into student housing for training. I had just enough funds to buy gas for the remainder of the trip into Atlanta, some snack food, and a couple meals at the diner. There were, or there had been, many opportunities for me to practice frugality in my 31 years. I was advised as a child who was not in charge of the purse strings to waste not, want not. My college career was marked by general lack of funds to pay fees on time. In fact, I had withdrawn from Knoxville College, owing a federal student loan a little over $1,000. This was a consequential and uh, prolonged debt that would have to be repaid before I could reenter any college to complete a bachelor's degree. If asked, I would always say that I left school in my senior year to marry my first husband. The truth was that I was exhausted after three years of dealing with the pressure of borrowing money to attend a school in which I had only achieved a modicum of success. As a college dropout, my options for employment were limited. The wages from the jobs I did find, like working as a line seamstress with Levi Strauss and as an aide in the daycare barely covered my transportation and daycare expenses. My husband's salary as a truck driver in our uh, statues as college dropouts created an atmosphere full of stress, and the ever-present need for more and more money. We married based on a sensual, all-consuming, and obsessive passion. There were many days I felt I couldn't take another breath unless he was beside or inside me. He wrote long letters from the war zone that were brimming over with devotion to fill the hours when we weren't together. Soon after, the commitment to love, honor, and, and obey was consummated the desire to acquire the things we thought we were entitled to own started to overwhelm our lives. The waitress appeared and refilled my glass of water. Honey, she said, will that be all? Was the meatloaf okay? She still had a sympathetic look on her face. It was appreciated, but not viewed by me as an open invitation to chat. After all, the woman was white. My experience as a 13-year resident of the South warned me to suspect any signs of interest from white people. I didn't dislike the entire race. It wasn't about like or dislike. It was about trust. I decided to see what was on the jukebox. Normally in Tennessee, most of the records on the playlist were strictly country music. This preference for what I saw as Pillbilly music uh, had always seemed to be a method used by the over 95% white majority to demonstrate to the minority population that their taste simply did not matter. To my amazement, over half the songs on the jukebox in this small Georgia diner were Motown or Stax hits. (laughs) I put a dime in and chose an appropriate double play of Jimmy Ruffin's What Becomes of the Broken Hearted. Absolutely, the dumbest thing one can do when you are depressed is to play a slow song that has the lyrics that apply to your real problem. Rough and smooth tenor boys hit home, and the words resounded in my head. There was no doubt that at this moment, I could say that walking in near darkness and alone is truly a journey to nowhere. Wow.
0: So, Linda Jean, what is writing the book and also sharing it with readers?
1: What has it taught you? Deep lessons to be humble, to continue being humble always. And it's given me a sense of purpose, especially as I work in my current project, you know, to bring, to create a different type of student on college campuses, one that is community sensitive, a global citizen. I don't just teach about global citizenship. I actually think that I want to create young disciples who will go out and also say, why are you doing this? You know, that's not, that's not uh, something you're, you know, you're inflicting pain on someone and and, then violating their human rights because they understand these types of concepts. So I take my teaching personally. And I think before I had finished this book, I wasn't this committed. And before I had gone through the pandemic, I wasn't this committed. It's not that I'm afraid of disease, Yvonne. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm going to be overcome shortly because of my advanced age. And I know this. I don't probably, if we just look at the pure simple facts, have a lifespan in front of me as long as yours. Okay. We just look at the odds here. All right. So what I've got to do is I've got to take every minute I have and make it. A minute of value. I have to have every opportunity. I'm so blessed to be on a college campus to talk to young people. And I could come to tears about this. God took my first son. I've had thousands of students that I can impact. Thousands of students. In a way, I've never been robbed. Mm -hmm. The earth has a way of making things even out. And when I teach indigenous logic about the mother earth and I teach that as part of global studies and becoming a global citizen. I am a hundred percent with this, that age, ancient logic, which says that the balance that we're so, you know, about the Anthropocene, the balance that is so off now that Latour talks, uh, talked about before his death, trying to get all of this back into balance so that we can have a life that is sustainable. All of this can only be accomplished if we take He of the warnings that have been produced out of all of these experiences and listen to the the historical record listen to all of these voices from the past that not trying to tell you what to do but they're trying to tell you that these are pitfalls these are things that should be avoided and also i think to produce a way of thinking about things this is my my resilience package. You've got to be able to think like this. You've got to be able to deal with this whole cosmic thing in order to get to the place that you yourself can be a person of fairness, a a person who, who honestly believes in human rights or, or, or something that should be defended until you get there. You know, you're, you're going to struggle. That's why you produce writings like this to show that that's okay. It's all right that you're going through this. You're going to love, you're going to, you know, be hated. People are going to envy you. I've had all of these, these lessons and they're all in this, this little short book. I try to be as open and honest as I can with people to give them exactly the way that I teach my courses. How do you teach a good course? You give the good history. Then you come back and give case studies. I've approached this book the same way as I teach.
0: Oh, I love that.
1: And we have our final reading, please. Okay, Uh, and it uh, is at the end of a conclusion chapter, chapter 30, in which I give credit. I have to preface this one, if you don't mind. I give I I straighten out the historical record because my impressions of things like historically black universities, et cetera, was twisted and it was twisted by the, the things that I detail and great a great length in here and it, and I had to go back to clarify the record. I had to give the truth and I do provide the truth about some of the things that I experienced and also give credit to some of the people that helped to shape me into the individual I am today. So this is a brief reading, I think okay we'll we'll jump into it. I hope I hope it's brief okay. All right in closing, the need exists to take one final look at the sources of my current state of apprehension. As the text reveals, I've overcome the temptation to resort to hatred by adopting projects. After teaching several courses that focus on the ecological balance of the planet and others in which I explored the migration of my people of African heritage, I realized that I could use the position of lecturer to create a worthwhile legacy. Students inspired me to care about their development as global citizens a position from which they become involved in projects to assure technological equity and environmental justice. I became committed to inspire them to see difference as an asset and to use this viewpoint as a lens to clearly understand the multifaceted nature of political, economic, and cultural problems. As the pandemic approached, I was as I said, beginning to establish a nonprofit initiative designed across disciplines to bring professors that share my commitment to increase global citizenship into close contact with students. On the ride home that last day on campus before the pandemic, the seeds of my deepest fear began to grow. Of all the plans that I launched during a Lifetime Chasing the Dollar The failure of this enterprise did finally break my heart. Poets and writers of prose have filled volumes with notions about brokenheartedness. As the text reveals, wiser men and women in my life passed along very useful strategies that did help me to withstand waves of missed opportunities, disappointments, and even my own shortcomings. Yet as I began to teach online during the pandemic and the tragedies and deaths continued to mount, None of this knowledge was strong enough to protect me. Like so many teachers, I channeled compassion daily as the only thing I had to give to my students who suddenly became ill or just as quickly found themselves to be the surviving source of support for their own households. Yes, doing this work was painful, but the reaction I saw from the unmasked pushed me slowly into a space of hatred. I couldn't imagine that at least 30% of the people in this country felt entitled enough with or without a medical degree to deny the rest of humanity the right to live. It would be easy to write this group of nonconformists off and join the ranks of growing numbers of people who despise them and only wish them harm. Now it is common to hear expressions of hatred that lack any compassion for the unmasked and those that could accept shots that refuse to become vaccinated. Men and women on the street comment without reservation that things like they should just be denied admission to the hospital. Let them die in the street like the dogs they are. They don't give a damn about the rest of us. Now we don't care about them. They can all go straight to hell. This is what my fear is about. I fear becoming one of the justifiably angry. But I am wrong. Everything in my past has prepared me to overcome the deep feelings of resentment. Finally, some will read this and comment that I have the solution because I really absorbed the knowledge buried in the scriptures during all those trips to various churches. There is evidence that during previous eras, when mankind became evil, Those that held on to the faith found redemption and a path to enlightenment by calling upon the Almighty. I don't deny the wisdom of the past or the power of God to bring about change. But even with this knowledge, I'm just afraid. Yes, afraid uh, to my core that too many of the unmasked who have read the same passages believe without hesitation that they have the right to claim the personal freedom overrides a biblical admonishment to not kill. The reality is that the fear of a death by social or socioeconomic exclusion or corporal eraser is commonly experienced by members of groups from the margins of society. For this reason, this work joins a host of previously ignored voices to leave behind the breadcrumbs of Afro-American resilience.
0: So, Linda Jean, where can we buy Gifting Resilience, a Pandemic Study of My Black Female Resistance?
1: Uh, Most popular sources uh, is Amazon. Uh, because, you know, and so it's, it's available there. Bookstores, it's sold in, uh, Great Britain. I know it's all over Europe. Um, and I know that now from looking at WorldCat, <laughs> okay, that, uh, it's in some collections and private libraries, um, and university libraries too. The circulation is going to increase in the United States a whole lot when it joins the rank of my second book. And it really goes to the third tier of universities. Right now I've said, uh, if you look at, r1s you know research universities versus the other kind okay well it's only in a couple r1s but now it's it's being picked up in r1s and so it'll soon be in those collections also but it's available in bookstores you may have to order it because it'll be like a lot of books they they don't put everything on the shelf you don't get that that claim to to fame on the shelf in, in um in commercial bookstores unless you're selling you know the volumes and so I'm not in that league right now, but who knows? <laughs> oh, God.
0: Well, thank you so much. Thank you for being my guest, for reading and for talking to us about the book. Um, I just really appreciate you being my guest here on Bookable Space.
1: Thank you for the opportunity and good Anytime. luck on your new uh, position. And uh, I'll thank be keeping you. an eye on you. And we want to have you at the University of California in some way.
0: Oh, thank you so much for the invitation. I graciously accept.